This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the host of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field. And we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Crawl Space. I am Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing so well. Uh, just got through the holiday season, um, unless you count New Year's being part of it. But yeah, I do right in the midst of the holiday season, and it's and it's going well. It's going well. How about you? I'm doing well too. I'm excited for 2020 and what that'll bring for Crawl Space Media and our shows. Missing more Amari Crawl Space. Empty Frames, and all shows on the entire network. Check them out at crawlspace-media.com. Yeah, and stay tuned. Like you said, there will be more shows. We're going to start selecting uh, shows in different genres and uh, maybe you know bring, bring more to the table. Create the community is what I'm saying. That's right. And Lance, for this episode, we spoke to a really well-known crime author, her name is Diane Fanning, and she was a lot of fun to talk to. Yeah, she is now a new friend of ours, and I'm really excited because I feel like we finally met our uh, real-life version of Jessica Fletcher. <laughs> she She's written a 1,000 books. She's written, uh, I think, over 15 true crime books. She's written 11 mystery novels that are fictional. Uh, she has anthology collections. She's been on the Today Show. She's been on 2020. She's been a consultant for 48 hours. And she was incredibly fun to talk to. She was. And and so we specifically talk about three different cases. We spent some time uh, discussing her work on three cases. And the first one is about Angelica Griswold and uh, her fiancé who drowned in the Hudson River. And it was a book that Diane wrote called Death on the River, a fiancé's dark secrets and a kayak trip turned deadly. That is, sounds really fascinating, doesn't it, Lance? Not only is Diane's book uh, an incredible read, but it makes you want to look into Angelica's uh, life since she's been released from prison. She was convicted for uh, negligent uh, homicide in her husband uh, Vincent's death. And she's gone on to do other interviews, but this is the type of story that Diane is attracted to. And she's got numerous uh, other other uh, books that she, she's uh, like dug into this deeply. Yeah, we talk about The Staircase and uh, Michael Peterson the uh, the guy obviously accused of uh, killing his wife. Diane's book is called Written in Blood, and it was released in 2018. And so we get into that for 10, 15 minutes. I think that was really an interesting part of the conversation as well. And then she uh, starts talking about the obsession that Tommy Lynn Sells, the serial killer, had with her, which is uh, kind of a crazy situation that she went through with him. Her book, uh, Through the Window. And check out Diane Fanning on her website at dianefanning.com. Links in the show notes to buy her books. Buy them. Give them a read. 
And uh, also, before we get to this interview, just want to mention, we are hitting the road in 2020. We're doing two shows with the crime comedy podcast, True Crime Obsessed, uh, in Boston. One in Boston on March 20th, 2020, and one in Philadelphia on March 21st, 2020. Check it out at truecrimeobsessed.com. There is links in the show notes. Yeah, really cool that Patrick and Jillian asked us to do this again with Maggie. The show that we did in Brooklyn went so well. Uh, they added two more shows. You know, what better way to spend St. Patrick's Day weekend than in Boston and in Philadelphia? The Boston show is at uh, Club Royale, and that is at 8 p.m. And the Philadelphia show the next night on the 21st is also at 8 p.m. at Underground Arts. Thank you for listening. Happy New Year. Welcome to Crawl Space. We are being joined today via the FaceTime hotline by Diane Fanning, true crime author. Diane, how are you? I am fabulous. Ah, you sound it. I'd be only thing that would make it better if the rain we're getting now would suddenly turn to snow. Oh, well, you so want you're, snow? You're looking for the snow. Diane. Yes. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Cold rain is miserable. Uh, cold snow, how is that better? Yeah, sliding in your car, <laughs> cold feet, <just> miserable. <laughs> well, you know, we haven't. I haven't had, I had to shovel any yet this year, so I'm feeling pretty good about it. Don't snow even, don't point. even talk to Tim about shoveling snow. Tim had a very, very bad, <laughs> yeah. bad experience. I fell uh, last week um, on the ice. Um, we, we're about. Uh, oh no. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay though. But uh, whereabouts uh, do you live? I live down in um, Virginia, towards the west side in the mountains. Oh, very cool! Oh, you're you're holed up there in the uh, in the mountains of Virginia, just cranking out these true crime novels. Yeah, yeah, good atmosphere for it. The yeah. Rocky Mountains, <laughs> the old Rockies. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, so yeah, you had uh, originally agreed uh, via Twitter to uh, come to the now-defunct American Crime Fest. That's right. So we wanted to yes, thank you for that. it sounded like it would have been fun. It did sound like it would have been fun, and you it, even You agreed. know what, guys? Yeah. It would have been fun. It would have <laughs> <been> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, been fun. But, yeah, it's so cool that you were able to um, follow back up on that and, and tell us that you were able to show up and you're even going to uh, join me on the boardwalk for a cup of coffee <laughs> uh, Sunday morning uh, to watch the sun come up with uh, the, the Atlantic right there. But uh, alas, the, <laughs> the American crime fest did not happen, but we wanted to make sure that uh, this conversation still happened. Yeah. Cause you are prolific. Yeah. Say that again. My goodness. You how, are prolific. <laughs> how many? Uh, well, I didn't, yeah. I didn't start till late, so I had a lot of stuff stuffed in my head. I had to get out. Wow, I like that. So is that how that works? When, when, when at what age did you start writing these books? I I uh, was fifty one. No way. There you go. Good for you. Yes. Oh my gosh! And you? Yeah. And how many have you pumped out? I've got twenty six books. My gosh, look at you. 26 books. Okay, for people who are listening, go to dianefanning.com, and the last name is spelled exactly how you think, F-A-N-N-I-N-G.com, dianefanning.com, and just look at the books, true crime, mystery novels, then you just like have other books. You have a link that literally says other books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned that, that you had done other things. What, what were you doing before this? Oh, well, I um, spent quite a few years in nonprofit, um, working for uh, one of the community shares, the community shares organization in Texas. And I worked for muscular dystrophy and um, seems like, the, oh, yeah, and communities and schools. What were you doing for all these community organizations? Uh, I was executive director, so I was busy telling people what to do. 
<laughs> or, you know, uh, scrounging for supplies and volunteers and, and, and money. So, yeah, that's what I did. And before that, I was in radio. Wow. Okay, very cool. And you also mentioned something, uh, some work with uh, uh, the, deputy off- the deputy sheriff's office. Did I hear that right? No, I didn't. I, I I didn't work with the deputy. I didn't shoot the deputy. Um, <laughs> okay. you, you know, shot the sheriff. Whatever. That's right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Good. You're so prolific with with these books. I'm looking here. Death on the River: A Fiance's Dark Secrets and a Kayak Trip Turned Deadly. That one was released in 2019. Is that your latest book? It it was. Yeah, that was the latest book. I have had. A fiction that just came out in paperback in um, the UK, and after the first year, it'll be coming out in in paperback in the US. But it already has been out in hardcover. Okay, how do you choose your cases that you work on? When um, you know we're specifically talking about true crime, how did you choose Death on a River? Uh, Death on the River, and well, I like books that have cases where I think it's a source I can learn something new. And I'd never had a book with a drowning death before. And I never had a perpetrator from Latvia before. And I never did one set in the Hudson Valley before. So it was like, oh, lots of stuff new to find out about. Okay, that's very cool. How do you do your research? Do you contact family members and law enforcement? Yes, I do that. Well, the first thing I do is I go to the newspaper and find all the coverage I can, pull out all the different names I can, because that gives me um, people to talk to first. But then one of the questions I always ask in an interview is, who else should I be talking to? And I get a lot of names uh, that way. And I also, you know, go to the courthouse, get court documents, and um, and interview uh, everybody I can uh, on both sides. I tried to interview um, the, the a family member of the perpetrator in this case, but um, the language barrier was something we could not overcome. She thought she knew it was pretty good, and I I didn't know any Latvian or Russian, so I, I was you know totally helpless. But um, I tried to get a translator, and that that fell through. So yeah, I tried my best, but it can't it, you can't always do everything you want. So I was not able to talk to uh, family members of Angelica, mm. but I was able to talk to some of her friends. So that was very helpful. Okay, and we're speaking of uh, the subject of the book, uh, Death on the River. Uh, Angelica Griswold, she was 39, and she is uh, currently behind bars, I think, right, for the murder of her fiancé, uh, Vincent Viafore. Is that cr- pronounced correctly? N- Vincent Viafore, but uh, she is out. She's out. Well, On parole. Welcome back. And th- it's still an open question of whether or not she will be uh, deported. Um, I think if she goes back of her own free will, uh, nobody will be deporting her. So I don't know what's going to happen there. I uh, heard a rumor that she had gone back, but someone said it was just for a visit. So I don't know. I just don't know. Can you tell us what happened in that case? Yeah, it's a pretty crazy um, murder. Yeah, they went, uh, Angelica... And and Vinny went out on the Hudson River in kayaks, and it was really, it was still April, and the Hudson River is really too cold to go out without having a wetsuit on or some other uh, thermal protection like that. They went out, and everything was nice and calm, and they got to the island, and they spent some time there. And then when it was time to leave, the storm was starting to stir up. And the Hudson's a tidal river, so it, it, it's not just flowing in one direction. It flows in both. And so that can make it more, um, more turmoil when the wind hits it. 
So it got was getting windier and windier. They tried to go behind the island, but um, they couldn't get back there to the backside. And so they set out to go across. And at first, it was sort of a wild and crazy ride. And Vinny was actually enjoying fighting the waves and everything. And then he capsized. And when he capsized, he's in this water that is just too cold for survival. And hypothermia set in. And his um, his breathing got very desperate. And he and he couldn't catch a breath. And he couldn't get get onto anything. And all he had was his seat cushion for a flotation device. And Soon he couldn't hold on to anything any longer, and and Angelica was right there, but she the only thing she did was take his paddle away, and I don't think he could have held himself up on his paddle, but still she took the paddle away, and the and the kayak couldn't be turned upright, probably because the, the plug had been pulled out of it by. Angelica, and she watched watched him struggle till he went underwater, and it took her a full twenty minutes to call nine one one. Okay, that's fascinating. Um, and she was found guilty of murder. She was found guilty of murdering him. Well, no, it was more like uh, she was found guilty of an uh, unintentional homicide. Sort of like manslaughter, but even a less of a charge. There are some in law enforcement that think that this was all premeditated. Wow. I think that she's been having a lot of thoughts about getting rid of this dude because he told her if she wasn't going to get a job, she was going to have to move out. And um, and the relationship was going to be over. Well, she wanted to marry him. This was her plan. And... Uh, but she wanted to have this big fancy wedding. She wanted to have a celebration on the Hudson River. She wanted to have the marriage itself on a beach in Latvia. And but she wouldn't work to help pay for it. And uh, Vinny, having overspent and gone into bankruptcy once before, I uh, didn't find this at all amusing. And he said, you know, end of the month, you don't uh, have a job, you're gonna have to move out, and the relationship's over. And I guess she thought that uh, it would be better to get rid of him than to be forced out. Wow. So she saw this as an opportunity to, to get rid of him and had the, yeah. had the, 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 the mental and stomach fortitude to watch this happen. How, how long had they been together and, and had they had any sort of uh, bad times in their relationship? Was there any indication that he was abusing her at all? No, there was no indication that he was uh, abusing her. If anything, she was abusing him. I mean, there were a number of people that talked about her swinging a punch at him or hitting him, and he would just stand there and take it. Hmm. Um, she was pretty hot-headed. And uh, I think that, you know, when when this happened, he went in the water, she thought, oh, this is my chance. I'm going to take, I, I take chance, advantage of the opportunity. And I'm sorry, if you love somebody, even if you're going to kill yourself in the process, you're going to do everything, including going into that water to try to save that other person. Yeah, so I, I'm kind of confused on taking the paddle and not not being able to use the paddle to help him. To and pull him back in somewhere, some yeah. E even if the, it's a one-person yeah. kayak and, and he wouldn't fit there, I feel like maybe she could have helped him with that paddle in some way. It should be an attempt. Yeah, yeah, I mean, when he first went in, before the hypothermia started setting in, um, if he could have, if she could have pulled on the paddle, I, you know, it, it might have been a fool's errand, but some effort would have been something I think I would do. I mean, if I was in that situation with someone I just met, I think I would try something. I certainly wouldn't wait 20 minutes before I bothered to call 911. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe she was concerned she was going to get pulled in herself, which I, I guess I could see that. It's better than two people uh, dying um, of hypothermia, you know, starting there. But what about the phone call? Were they out of service? Why couldn't she place that call sooner? No. She just didn't. 
She just didn't. It's just simple. She just didn't do it. What was her? Did did she have any reasoning in uh, in court? No. Well, there wasn't a trial, so she never had to come up with a reason. Oh. Right. There wasn't a trial because she pled guilty to this negligent homicide. Right. Gotcha. Right. Wow. I was looking at some articles on this, and she won't relive the final moments of his life. And she has a quote here that says, bottom line, I'm the only living person who's still here, and I'm the only one who knows. So it's just between me and God. We'll leave it at that. Okay, yeah, then. Yeah, well. Yeah, there you go. You know, that's, yeah, well. That reminds me of, um, you guys remember that part from Misery, Stephen King's Misery? How could I forget? Where, yes. Where she says uh, something like, um, there is a justice higher than that of man. I will be judged by him. Yeah. Uh, that's how, uh, it's yeah. like just her version of saying that. Jesus. Good God. So are you ever concerned that uh, someone like this would reach out to you uh, because you've, you've made them the subject of the book? And what do you have to do to get around that legally? Yeah, you're not going to go kayaking with her, are you? Yeah. <laughs> no, that I can promise you. Um, I've been in a kayak a few times, but I, I've decided I'm, I'm not doing that again. Not yeah. even not even in warm water. So um, it just gets too intense after a short distance. So I uh, would not do that. But, you know, she's contacted me since she's been out of jail and apologized for not answering my letter. I said a lawyer told her not to. And, yep. and so the book was out and she was being very nice and positive to me. I don't quite understand that, considering what I wrote. Um, but then <laughs> she wants to go Tommy kayaking Lincell, with you. That's why. She... Yeah, Tommy Lynn Sells, he was a serial killer, and I interviewed him um, twenty times and to, to to write through the window. And uh, he read that book, and I thought I pretty much shredded him to pieces and he said i think you were fair (laughs) i don't know Uh, i don't know it's hard to know how sociopaths and psychopaths think and i do think that angelica is a sociopath wow okay i love it all right um well she i don't know if you saw this i was looking at another article when she got out she posed for l magazine Underwater in a bathtub. Jesus. Smiling at the camera. Yeah, some people, you know. It, what a weird. I'm reminded of this story that I read in People of the Lie that the, this um, couple had two boys. They gave one boy a rifle for Christmas when he was 16, and he used it to commit suicide. Well, once they got the rifle back and they had it all cleaned up, they thought it was a good idea to give it to their second son. Come on. Serious. This really happened. M. Scott Peck worried about that, that couple. And they were sociopaths. They didn't have any natural empathy for other people, did not understand anything from anyone else's shoes. Unbelievable. Good God. So, yeah. speaking of sociopaths, um, I know you, you wrote a book She's called... She's not writing a book on me, Tim. <laughs> 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 you beat me to it. Um, you did write a book about Casey Anthony, though. Oh, yes. Oh, Lordy. Now, I, I consider her... Yeah, she's a sociopath. She's a malignant narcissist. Okay. What, now, what's the difference between that and just, you know, the, the blanket term sociopath? There's a certain extended hatefulness when you talk about a malignant narcissist. Uh, They have an intellectual understanding of how they hurt other people, but they don't care. Right. Oh, my gosh. So that's is that akin to just the uh, the lack of empathy that we hear about with uh, psychopaths? It is. It is. But it's like another step up the ladder. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of sociopaths out walking the road and in your neighborhood and everywhere. There's been studies that have said that the majority of CEOs are sociopaths. So there's a lot of sociopaths who never will kill anybody. That's, yeah. But, you know, throw in some malignant narcissism and you've got someone like Casey Anthony 
who uh, could could very possibly kill someone again. I don't think it's impossible right. because I am certain. I sat down with all the forensic reports, all the scientific analysis, and I am certain that she intentionally murdered that darling little girl. Yeah. What an awful, awful case. And we're um, talking, her, her daughter's name was Kaylee, right? Kaylee, Kaylee, yeah. Kaylee Marie? Kaylee, yeah. Yep. And what a beautiful little child. And she had been so lovingly captured in videos and photographs by her grandparents that the whole world knew what a beautiful little thing she was. I mean, little two- and three-year-olds are just gorgeous anyway. Um, even if they're funny-looking, they're, they're, they're very cute. <laughs> But we don't always have that many pictures of them that we can look at them and go, ooh, isn't that sweet? You know? But we did of Kaylee. It was amazing the number of shots that were of her. Yeah. When, now, what, what the hell happened in that case? Why, why isn't Casey Anthony behind bars? Well, I think that there there was a problem with the jury. The jury system is definitely not perfect, and there are a lot of people that think there should be a professional jury system, and they may be right. I'm just not totally convinced, but I'd be willing to give it a shot. The um, the jurors could have asked to look over any material they wanted. They asked for none of the scientific reports, and to me, the scientific reports made it very obvious. It, it may not may not have been easy to absorb, and you might have to go over it some. Granted, but the information was all there. Instead, the jury accepted as evidence the opening statement and closing statement of the defense attorney. He said things in the opening and the closing that he had provided no proof for throughout the trial. But that's what the opening is supposed to be for. It is not evidence. It's to say, this is what I'm going to show you. But then he never showed anybody. And then he wraps up at the end with the closing, like, yeah, see what I showed you? Well, no, you did it. Mm. That's so disappointing. And, it, and it's one of the ways that um, jurors get hoodwinked. I mean, they, yeah. they've been at this for quite a while, and I'm sure they all desperately wanted to get back home. Yeah. And I think I heard there was someone there that needed to go on a cruise. And I can relate to that, and I can understand why they didn't want to take any more time. But darn it, there was a just justice for a little tiny girl at stake. And instead, they took the words of the defense attorney, and they cast the blame on her father. Ugh. How long did this trial go on for? Oh... Uh, I think it was two or three weeks, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't remember. Okay, I, I do but remember. It, w- it wasn't like uh, we're not talking O.J. Simpson trial length, right? Right, right. Or even <sighs> Michael Peterson. Shoot, that or, thing yeah. was three months. Yeah. I feel like ever since the O.J. trial, everything's been going downhill. You know, people, people hear about what that jury went through and how long they were sequestered, and... Then you get a case like uh, like this one, like you know, it grant like Casey Anthony, you know, is found not guilty, and it is about a, a young, you know, a, her her little daughter. But I I feel like the in the back of jury members' heads, they're thinking, I can't stay on this thing for eighteen months. I can't, you know. Who would want so, to? So yeah. they so they let it. They let themselves sort of subconsciously be. Know, take the take the suggestions what from the defense. What I can't attorneys. understand is neglect or even abuse could be surmised yeah. from the fact that she didn't report that child missing. Yeah, Ugh, I'm so mad, Diane. And they did not find her guilty. Of that the only thing they found her guilty of was lying to the the police. Well, I'm sorry, they could have found her guilty of a lot more things, even if they were unsure of the murder charge. I was very disgusted with that jury. The only thing I'm glad of is my book came out before the trial. And so I was able to be very honest about it. I had to put in this little legal caveat to cover myself. But yeah. 
I was able to be honest and say what exactly I saw because there had not been a conclusion. Wow, oh, man. So you worked on this book before the trial, uh, before the, uh-huh. okay. And you had to put this legal caveat on it. Were you contacted by her lawyers or have you been contacted by her lawyers or by her since or during? No. I tried to contact the lawyers, uh, your lawyer. Uh, at one time, I was, I mean, there was like an absolute scrum for reporters. Um, and I was down in Orlando. And apparently, I got a little too close to Jose Baez for his bodyguard's comfort. And he slammed me up against a concrete wall. Really? And, um, yeah. And a deputy came running up to me and he said, I saw that. I can be your witness. That's assault. Wow. And I thought, I said, thank you, sir, but I really do not want to be part of this story. <laughs> I believe. Yikes. Jeez. Well, okay. Well, how about on to, uh, oh, from one frustrating case to another one. This uh, Michael Peterson um, piece of work. And uh, so you've written a book called Written in Blood. And um, so that's yeah. that's about Michael Peterson who um, and and his wife who he uh, allegedly murdered. Which one? Uh, I don't... The first one or the other, the second one? The first one was not his wife. Okay. Yeah, the second one was his wife. He murdered Kathleen Peterson, and um, I, I am, I am fairly uh, like ninety nine point ninety nine percent certain that he caused the death of Liz Ratliff as well. And uh, I'm sorry, that wasn't his wife. Was that just a girlfriend? No, 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 that wasn't a girlfriend. He was married to another woman at that time and had two sons. And Liz Ratliff um, was teaching. Uh, on an army base at, at a school there on an army base and Michael Peterson's wife was also teaching at that school so that's where the relationship came in now Liz had a husband who was active military and while he was on a mission in South in Central America he died and they supposedly natural causes and uh you know there were questions raised about it, but i i don't think there's anything um ominous behind that and um so when he died liz had two little tiny girls and the petersons were helping her out with stuff and one of the things that just had her in a tizzy was figuring out all the financial stuff and the life insurance and all that crap and michael said I'll help you. I'll take care of all that financial stuff. Well, Michael has a bit of a history of stealing from friends. And that's the theory behind uh, his motive for killing her is that she realized he was taking, robbing her blind and, um, and was, had confronted him. And that's why she died. Wow. Thank you, Diane. For the for the longest time, I, I had heard that. I, I guess I just assumed I connected my own dots uh, very irresponsibly um, because he took over the he uh, took over the, uh, the the children, but he he helped with the children. So I just assumed that they were in a romantic relationship. No, and when he took the children, it was all he actually had been assigned. Liz had asked for his wife to take care of the children, but he took the children, um, and um, he was getting uh, revenue because they were orphaned kids from a man who died in service to his country. And he was asked, well, why don't you adopt them? And he said, no, then the money will get cut off. So it wasn't, yeah, let's not make it seem like Michael Peterson uh, was doing this out of the goodness of his heart. He saw some, like a payday from it. Right. Okay. Right. All right. Okay. So you're, you're 100% in the corner that she was, uh, she, she was attacked by an owl and she fell down the stairs (laughs) on her head. You know what? Peterson's attorneys laughed at that owl theory when it came up during the original trial. And they said, that's the most ludicrous thing we've ever heard of. Keep that out of the courtroom. <laughs> so, um, Those yeah. are Peterson's and so now attorneys. they're embracing it. Give me a break. <laughs> oh, boy. And that I was there and met that French film crew that filmed 
the footage that went into the original staircase broadcast. Yeah. And um, they were convinced when they landed on the scene that um, he was innocent. He was an urbane, cosmopolitan kind of guy. And these backward Southerners were just out to get him. Well, I wasn't he. Uh, isn't he dating one of the people on the like one of the producers from the staircase? He was dating someone on the um, yeah, one of the news broadcasters. I forget which station, but yeah, yeah, unreal. And you know, and and the thing of it is, the staircase. They they left out the most important evidence in the Netflix series. Yes. Are you telling me that that a documentary what? was biased no. in uh, in a certain way? Because I, I will I will flip <laughs> this table over. Diane. Not again. Tim's already flipped the table twice today. <laughs> so in what? Well, one of the things that was left out, yeah, and should have been shown in the trial segment, was the red neurons. Now, Kathleen, on autopsy, they found red neurons in her brain. Red neurons do not occur unless you've been laying there and slowly bleeding to death for at a raw minimum, absolute minimum, two and a half hours. Most people said they've never seen less than three or four hours. So even two and a half. Michael Peterson, his story was, I was outside with my wife. She came in. 45 minutes before me, when I came in, she was dead at the bottom of the stairs. Not enough time for those red neurons. No. No. There was also evidence that um, there had been some cleaning up mm-hmm. in that stairwell, some attempt at cleaning up. Um, I, I, I think that, that, you know, it is possible that the murder weapon was disposed of by someone else who had the physical evidence on his body that that could have happened. His son, Todd. Oh, I was going to say, it had, sounds like you have a very specific idea. Yeah. He had um, transfer stain of blood on the shoulder of his shirt, on the foot on that side of his body, on the back of the tennis shoe. There was a perfectly round drop of blood, and that means it fell down straight. So I'm thinking that, and I'm not alone in this, but I'm thinking that he had that, that the murder weapon. He took it away from the house and got rid of it. That then after he was gone with that weapon, 911 was called and he got back just at the same time that the first responders arrived on the scene. Damn. Jeez. Well, um, I looked at uh, the first page of your book here, uh, written in blood, and um, you you write the call from Michael Peterson, and then uh, the last paragraph of this um, chapter is very powerful because you say over the next few hours, everyone who entered the house was were shocked by the copious amount of, amount of blood, blood on the walls, blood on the floor, blood on Kathleen, but blood was a word that Michael Peterson never spoke on the phone call. Oh, that is incredible. Yeah. Observation. Re- really creepy, too, because why wouldn't you say, you wouldn't say, oh, my God, there's blood everywhere. She's bleeding that never everywhere. never came out of his, out of his yeah. mouth. Even yeah. though there's literally blood. I mean, you would think he would have said that on the call. Dripping down the you walls. You definitely would say that on the call. If, you, if that was what you had just seen for the first time, yeah. Yeah. This guy wrote crime books, right? He wrote fiction. Did did he did he have a couple of crime, or was it like more historical stuff? Oh, he wrote. Okay, he wrote this um, historical fiction set in Vietnam that was rather good, and then he wrote uh, that was about Vietnamese. It was the main characters of Vietnamese people, and then he wrote one uh, set based on a soldier's point of view uh, on during Vietnam War. And that was really good. Both of them were very well written. And then I read uh, sort of the follow-up to A Time of War, which was his Vietnam War book, and I thought it was crappy. (laughs) And so when I talked to his ex-wife, I said, okay, look, we all know that you're an English teacher and that you probably 
uh, know how to write. And if you're like my spouse, you'll go through a manuscript and point out where things need to be fixed. And uh, so I'm thinking that's why his first two books were, were good and the next one was crap because you weren't there for the third one. Mm-hmm. She laughed but wouldn't make a comment. <laughs> oh, wow. Damn. Yikes. Yeah. What's your feelings on his uh, like his sexuality? There was some speculation, maybe even more than speculation, on whether he was bisexual, and that was um, one of the reasons. That... Oh yeah, I'm sure he was bisexual. There, there was all sorts of gay porn on his computer. That is what um, Kathleen found. She normally never used his computer, but she had accidentally left her laptop at work, and she was heading for Canada the next day. To and, and needed to check on some some documents, and so she looked on his computer. She saw the gay porn. She saw uh, the gay porn in the drawers, and she confronted him. Kathleen was a woman who had left her first husband because he was having an affair with a woman. So if he's going to do, if she's going to do that, she's going to stick around with somebody who is having. Um, Serial affairs with men? No. Mm. If you, fidelity matters to you and you leave over one, you're going to leave over the other. Right. Yeah. Now, you um, you also mentioned that he, your theory is that he enlisted the help of his son to um, dis- dispose of the, the weapon that was used. What was the prosecution's theory about the weapon? What What was it? What was it most likely? I thought, well, the police, I, I talked with them, and they, they think that that, they think he was involved, but they encouraged uh, the prosecutors not to press charges against Todd because it would just muddy the waters, and it probably would have. Because uh-huh. um, the lawyer could get up there and say, oh, well, they got some blood on, on him, too. So, oh, oh, okay, so we'll just, uh, uh, oh, and they want to hit, they're trying to say he's involved, so we'll just make it a thing of doubt. This is reasonable doubt. We don't know who killed her. Right. And what did they say that uh, Michael killed her with? What was their theory on that? Oh, it it was an object like the blowpoke. I mean, they, they kind of seized on the blowpoke because it was the kind of object that would be needed to make the type of injury. But the interesting thing is when Liz Ratliff's body was exhumed, the marks on the back of her skull were almost a perfect match to the marks on the back of Kathleen. So that would indicate the uh, same owl, the same owl, or the same um, the pen- same owl. Yes, <laughs> he is a transatlantic owl, <laughs> yeah. or or potentially the same pattern of staircase, but more realistically, the same weapon, um, which y- the same type of weapon, right. the same knowledge of what he needs to hit. To get the job done. Right. And this is like a fire. This is like a fireplace poker, right? The blow poke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, something... but it could have been anything similar to that. It didn't gotcha. have to be that blo- that particular blow poke. Right. Wow. So, wow, Jesus. Now, when you get involved in these, we just we just uh, you banged off three that seem incredibly uh, consuming. Um, both mentally and and even even kind of physically, because you you know you you go out and you start to do some research and you you get thrown against the wall by uh, bodyguards. Uh, do you know what you're getting in? I mean, at this point, does anything surprise you when you get into these? No, I was real surprised way back when when the Texas Rangers told me that I better have an escape plan because Tommy Lynn Sells will be moved from prison to the hospital prison for a short amount of time to have a procedure. And uh, if something happens, I need to get away from my house immediately. Well, I thought maybe they were just getting a little carried away. So I went and talked to a forensic psychiatrist and a forensic um, a psychologist. And both of them read some of the letters he wrote to me. And they said, you know what? If he ever gets out, he's coming straight for you. And I said, what? And they said, yeah, only he's not coming to hurt you. He's coming to get you to run away with him. When you don't run away with him, that's when he's going to hurt you. 
Wait a second. Ba- back yeah, this up. Who, who, who is this? Yeah, what book are we? should I be looking at right now? That's Through the Window. Okay. Tommy Lynn Sells, Serial Killer, 20, two decades, cross-country killing. My God. So you were, you were told by the police and by, you, did you say a psychologist? Oh, uh, yeah, a psychologist and a psychiatrist who reviewed the letters he sent. That he will be coming for you, and not initially yes. to hurt you, but to uh, to take you away. So I would run away with him. Wow. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, he's now been executed, so I don't have to worry about that anymore. Oh, but okay. that, yeah, that was a worry for a while. Wow. Um, that, that you so, would run yeah, away with I mean, him? Nothing, nothing is more than that. You know what I'm saying? It's like... <laughs> That's about the top of the list. Oh, man. Had you given any... Given and that was my first book. Have you given any consideration to running away with him at that point? Oh, my God, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, wait, now, why would he think you would be willing to run away with him? One of the things when you're um, dealing with a psychopath who's a master manipulator, the only way you can do it is by allowing them to think they are manipulating you when you are in actuality manipulating them. So I, I, I made him think I was his friend. I made him think I supported him. When the truth finally leaked through to his brain, um, he uh, said that he, he sent me a letter and said, that his spiritual advisors have told him he can't have anything more to do with me because I am not good for him. And um, that was like about two and a half, three years before he was executed. And his spiritual advisors were Satanists, which goes to figure. Okay. Damn. Do you mind if I read one paragraph of the, the description of this book on your website? Oh, go ahead. Ten-year-old Crystal Searles watched in horror as her best friend was murdered at the hands of an intruder. Then, with cold-blooded precision, he brought a 12-inch boning knife to Crystal's throat. With a single violent slash, he severed her windpipe and left her for dead. Miraculously, she survived and would lead authorities to the arrest of the 35-year-old Tommy Lynn Sells, a former truck driver, carnival worker, and cross-country drifter. This is an incredible story. Yes, sir. That's my baby. And this is <laughs> this is the first book that you wrote. Yes. That is that has taken on something right there. Wow. Um, yeah. When we were. Well, you know, I didn't. When you're ignorant, you don't know these things. Like, um, Ann Rule, I talked to her. I was having a problem. I ran into somebody that's mad at Ann Rule, and they were taking out on me. So I got in touch with Ann Rule and asked her, you know, if she knew what the deal was and, and everything. And, and she said, you're doing that book? I said, yes. And she said, oh, my God, they wanted me to do it, but I wouldn't do it because I knew it would be too hard. And you're like, well, that's why you're Ann Rule and I'm Diane Fanning. And... <laughs> Yeah, I'm ignorant. I just plunge on it. <laughs> well, Lance is ignorant too. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, sometimes that's the best quality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've I've always been one to um, learn as I go. So that that was the ultimate learn as I go experience. And you uh, communicated with Crystal for this book as well. Now, Crystal was very protected by parents. I talked to. Um, some of the people involved in what happened that night, uh, the, the, the family that was there at the scene. And, um, uh, but I didn't talk directly to Crystal. I mean, she was, she was pretty traumatized. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, uh, when did this happen? Yeah. It happened on New Year's Eve two, uh, 2001. Oh, no, okay. yeah, 2001. Right. Mm-hmm. And she was 10. Okay, so. It was like um, 3 in the morning on the day of December 31st. Oh, my God. So it was like like uh, almost a full clock, two clock rounds to get to actual New Year. Unreal. Jesus Christ. Does it ever get to you? Do you ever have any, like, PTSD from it? Do you wake up at night thinking that someone's, uh, you know, at your window? You know, I don't have, um, I didn't have nightmares. I'm, some of my kids had nightmares and my husband had nightmares. I did not. Um, what I think it's because the writing itself. 
itself is cathartic, yeah. and you get a lot of that out. I, I did become far more alert and aware of my surroundings whenever I'm out someplace. I, I pay more attention than I used to. And um, I, but I, I've had some times of dark thoughts, uh, a little depression at times. And when I got really bad about it once, because I, it wasn't just talking to people like that. It was looking at the crime scene photos that stick in your head like jelly and the uh, reading the autopsy reports and listening to victims' family members cry. It, it starts wearing you down. And that's why I shifted to fiction. Because with fiction, I can kill whoever I want to. <laughs> and nobody's going to cry. Yeah. And you can have your own justice. Yes. Yes. I like on your uh, on your homepage of your uh, website or in the true crime page, you have the Jack London quote. Uh, you can't wait for an inspiration. You have to go after it with a club, which is sort of what I was getting at with the end rule comparisons. Like, you know, you you went after it, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, Anne rule w- was very opportunistic. I mean, she happened to work with um, Ted Bundy and realized what was good in that she could take that and use that to her advantage. So she did. Yep. And she's a, she's much bigger in the world than I will ever be. But, you know, it was really amazing to know I did something that she was afraid to tackle. Exactly. Now she's a hack. Yeah, big time. Well, Diane, thank you so much. And where, where can we get your books? Oh, you can get them to Amazon and Barnes & Noble and Powell's Books and Murder by the Book in Houston. So it's... You won't find anything that's the newest in bookstores in all likelihood, but you can get them online, digital, print, or audio. Perfect. And what's next? Right now, I am coming to the end of writing a work of fiction that opens up with a woman watching the falling snow and contemplating how nice it would be if her husband would die on the way home. <laughs> oh, <laughs> love it. Good stuff, Diana. <laughs> Thank you.